Hey, good morning. Great to see you today. My name's Brad and I'm the youth pastor. I'll be continuing our series that we've uh, started last week on awkward family photos. I'm going to be talking about teenagers today. Each week we'll be addressing one member of or one area of family life. And uh, well, maybe you brought your awkward family photos to share a little bit later today. I'd love to see those. I'm excited to share with you a little bit about myself, what it is that I do as a youth pastor. I want to share some ridiculous stories with you, if that's okay. Um, and, uh, and kind of share why it is that I do uh, what I do. But to do that and to start here today, uh, we're going to turn to Judges 2 verse 6 to 15. I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation. It says this, After Joshua sent the people away, each of the tribes left to take possession of the land allotted to them. And the Israelites served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And we'll go to verse 10. After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things he had done for Israel. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They went after other gods, worshipping the gods of the people around them, and they angered the Lord. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth. Every time Israel went out to battle, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated just as he had warned. And the people were in great distress. Now this verse highlights the importance of what it means to pass on our faith story to the next generation. And it warns us about really what happens if we don't do it well. And so I want to highlight a couple of things in these verses that really bring that out. It says, The next generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord. Or remember the mighty things that he had done. And then as a result, they abandoned the Lord. They went after other gods. And the people were in great distress. Our youth today are absolutely bombarded with things that tear attention away from the living God. Tearing away focus, tearing away attention, tearing away uh, actions and thoughts and ideas. And really what it does, it rips away the future of our students, of our teenagers. And it does so in the promise of, uh, of some, some sort of satisfaction that ends up in a reality of just emptiness. Therefore, as the mature generation, you here today, one of our biggest tasks in life is to acknowledge God, pass on our God's story, and become really what is the champions of faith for our younger generation so that they can live a life that's uh, not of great distress, right? But of the freedom that they can experience in God as they remember the great things he has done through us. In the latest research from the Barna Group, it shows that two out of three Christians, 64% of people who call themselves Christians, made the decision to follow Christ before the age of 18. 64% to me says that there's something special between the relationship with God and with young people. 
And that's probably your story today. With this statistic of 64%, many of you likely became a Christian or a follower of Christ before the age of 18. This is one of the reasons that I do what I do today. Because 64% is a big number. I have a surprising amount of conversations about being a youth pastor. And usually when I tell people what I do, it elicits a bit of an empathetic response. Yeah. <laughs> How do you do what you do when I tell them I work with teenagers? Apparently teenagers have a bit of a reputation. The stories I could tell. About 10 years ago, I began working with uh, troubled teens or teens on the street uh, as a police officer in Sydney, Australia. And um, I moved to, a couple of years later, I moved to the States with my wife and we walked into our first youth ministry over in Westland, Oregon. And, um, and uh, I was nervous but excited um, and I was ready for anything and really anything is what I got. Uh, and I'd love to share a story with you of the first camp that I ran as a director. Uh, we ended the night with uh, a swim in the pond. Uh, it was a beautiful area. It was in Lyons, Oregon. Uh, and so the stars had opened up for us. We decided to go for a little swim. And so all the kids wrapped up the swimming time and ended up going to their rooms and, and getting some sleep. And apparently one of the students dreamed that uh, he was rolling off the pier into the delightful water and seeing the stars above him. In reality, in his sleep, he had climbed up onto a floating wall that was 10 feet high and rolled off. (laughs) The rest of the cabin woke up with a big thud and found that uh, he was there with the concussion of a lifetime. That was our first trip to hospital. (laughs) If you think that's bad, you see what some teenagers decide to do when they're awake. (laughs) In my first month of being a youth pastor, I was hanging out in the youth room with with some brothers, two teenage boys, and we were jumping into some big bean bags, and we're just goofing around and having some fun. And uh, and I had to leave the room for a short time, and I left very important instructions with them. I said, no flips, no flipping. Okay, got it? They said, of course. I said, great. So I left the room. A couple minutes later, the more coordinated one comes running out. He's a little scared, a little worried. I see it in his eyes. There's panic. He says, Dylan did a flip. So we both ran into the youth room. And if you're you're squeamish about blood, turn now, because this is what I was met with. There it is. Yeah. He had done a flip, landed on his head, and back to the hospital we went. You know, I think youth pastors should get a punch card for the hospital. Tenth visit free. Maybe I get a head scan while I'm there. I don't know. <laughs> Over the years, I have uh, had a lot of interesting uh, stories and a lot of interesting situations find me. Uh, I've met teenagers in all walks of life and definitely some that fit the classic teenager stereotypes that we've come to know in current culture. Spontaneous, entitled, selfish, disrespectful, Lazy, maybe a little moody. I think the reason that these stereotypes are so easy to believe is that we've all been there in this room. We know what it's like to live in that season of life. We know what it's like to still be a child, but 
but with adult thoughts and adult um, goals and ambition, yet still kind of uh, under the roof of our parents who still pay for our insurance and still pay for our gas. And we don't quite have the independence that we long for. But still, many adults find themselves uh, looking at teenagers today, usually the ones who have had a little bit of time to forget what it was like, and they think to themselves that being a teenager in the good old days was different. But I believe that not much has changed. Shakespeare, 400 years ago, writes this. I would, there were no age between 16 and 3 and 20, or that youth would sleep out the rest, for there is nothing in the between but getting wenches with child, sorry, just repeating a quote, <laughs> wronging the ancient tree, I love that, stealing and fighting later to write, would any of these boiled brains of 19 and 2 and 20 hunt in this weather? They have scared away two of my best sheep. <laughs> Shakespeare's betraying rambunctious teenagers in a very similar light that we do today. So I don't think much has changed. I don't think there's even much difference between teenagers today and the teenager which lived in that generation of Israelites in the first Bible verse that I read to you thousands of years ago. I think culture may have changed. Science and technology, absolutely. But I believe biology and chemistry hasn't changed much at all. This makes history really surprising. Because there are recordings of teenagers doing some really unteenager-like things. For example, at the age of 13, Joan of Arc led a French army over five years to victory. Again, at the age of 13, Anne Frank began writing her diary. At the age of 14, Mozart had already composed many of his symphonies. At age 16, Taylor Swift released her first album. <laughs> <laughs> At age 18, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. And 19 years was the average age of frontline U.S. service personnel fighting in the Vietnam War, the average age. Even more surprisingly is if we look at the Bible, the book that many of us have had their lives changed by, the book that Christians call the breathing, living word of God is filled by rather average teenagers living out impressive stories as God leads them. For instance, at age 11, Samuel was called as a prophet. Some of these stories may be familiar to you. At 14 or 15 years of age, David, a teenager, steps out of a crowd armed only with a slingshot and challenged a well-armed giant man to a death match. Who knows a few teenagers that might give that a go today? <laughs> At age 17, Timothy joined Paul on missions to start the early church. At age 17, again, Joseph was sold into slavery and went on to become a key advisor, the ruler of Egypt. And this might surprise you, uh, from age between something around 12 and 16 years, Mary accepts God's will to conceive Jesus. She was very young. Here's the question I have. What on earth is God thinking why would God give such an important role to a teenager? God must either be crazy, or more likely, he sees something that most of us don't see. Maybe teenagers have something going on that isn't going on for us adults. 
<laughs> exactly. Science shows that teenagers have some particularly spongy parts of the brain that tend to affect three important social behaviors. And if we take a look at these classic teenage social behaviors, I think that we can start to understand why God might use them in such a unique way. Maybe you've noticed these three classic things uh, as we go through them. Number one, risk-taking. Talking about David and Goliath, risk-taking. At 15 and 16 years old, risk, uh, taking risks increases dramatically right when they get a license, praise God. <laughs> the area of the brain that uh, processes rewards for uh, fun and risky things has become hyperactive compared to the part of the brain that, brain that makes logical decisions, okay? And I asked a student this week to do something incredibly challenging, actually for today's service. You're going to hear from him very soon. And his response was this, I'm very scared, but let's freaking do this. (laughs) Classic teenager, risk takers. Number two, highly self-conscious. Highly self-conscious. I remember having a conversation with a teenage girl about identity and where she fit in in her social group. And, And she said this, I don't dress nice enough to be a preppy. And then with really exasperation, she said, but I can't be a hippie because I don't know enough about biodiesel. (laughs) You may know a teenager who isn't quite comfortable in their own skin or maybe is trying to reinvent themselves over and over again. Classic teenager. And number three is this, low self-control. One year, (laughs) one year at summer camp, We had family-style meals, and one of the menu items was mashed potato. And uh, at the end of the meal, we collected all the leftover mashed potato and put it into one giant bowl. And then we challenged one of our junior boys to eat it. (laughs) He said, all right. So he sat down. 45 minutes, he got eating. And after every 10 scoops or so, he'd throw it all up and then keep going. Now, technically, he ate every scoop. (laughs) Low self-control, classic teenager. (laughs) So why would God make it a habit in encountering and using risk-taking, highly self-conscious, low self-controlled people to fulfill his plan? I believe what we might see as weakness, God sees as opportunity. Where we may see a risk taker, God sees strength and passion. Where we may see someone who's highly self-conscious, God sees someone who is adaptable and moldable. Where we see someone with low self-control, I believe God sees a willingness to say yes. Classic God, right? Turning what we would think is weakness into strength. 1 Corinthians 1 says this, Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. He chose the things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. 
Culture doesn't have a very good view of teenagers. I don't think it ever has. But for some reason, God uses them over and over again. I think God sees something of opportunity within teenagers. And let me tell you, the teenagers in this church are incredible. They are bold, courageous. They step out in their faith over and over and over again. I've seen teenagers do, pray bold, incredible, audacious prayers over other teenagers. I've seen teenagers leading other people to Christ. I've seen teenagers serving within our church. I've seen teenagers meeting financial needs of other teenagers. I've seen the most compassionate, giving people in the shape of a teenager throughout my years as a youth pastor. It's a crazy world that they live in, but the but they rise above it. They see through it. And they still chase after what's important. And you're going to hear from two of our teenagers today because I've asked them to share who they think God is. And so they're going to boldly come up here. They're going to share with you who they see their Savior to be. So first up, Emmett, would you come up? Would you give me a hand? Hey guys, my name is Emmett Fresh. I'm a senior at Glencoe High School. Uh, next year, I plan on attending PCC, where I'll be studying education, carpentry, and ministry. Now, Brad once told me to be more like Jesus. I think with those careers in mind, I'm doing a pretty good job. <laughs> so when, asked, when Brad asked me to share who God was to me, I was scared out of my mind. Uh, the only thing I could really think of doing was just pray and ask God to clear my mind and tell me what to say. Um, the overarching thing that came to my mind was that God is my best friend. I want to talk about um, how God is this because um, in the ways that he encourages me, he forgives me, and how he loves me. So I'm sure that all of you know that God works in some pretty crazy ways sometimes. Uh, one example of that is uh, he tends to use my injuries as a way to teach me. <laughs> Um, last or two summers ago, um, it was after a soccer game. My dad and I were playing basketball together. He's over there in the yellow shirt. Um, I go up and dunk over him, and he fouls me. Falls, I fall to the ground. I break my foot. Yeah, this was a really tough time for me because I ended up missing the whole junior year of my soccer career. But like, um, so yeah. Um, I was able to get through this because God encouraged me. Uh, this encouragement came through Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So I was out of commission for around five months. And hearing that God was there for me, that he loves me, that he's going to strengthen me and hold me up, was the best encouragement I could be given at that time. So since we're talking about awkward family photos, forgiveness is one thing that pops in my mind. My sister and I have a great relationship, but oftentimes she tests my forgiveness. Yeah. In a lot of ways, yeah. Um, so luckily for us, though, God will forgive you and I always and even embrace, embrace us with open arms. The second half of Colossians 2.13 says, He forgave us of our sins. Verse 14 goes on to say, Having canceled the written code with its regulations, that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. God, my best friend, 
will forgive me always because he loves me. And in a world where sin exists, it is, we can all use a little forgiveness. Like any best friend, God loves me. And I was trying to like figure out a really philosophical way to put this, but I think that the best way is just to read John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm fairly certain that many of you guys have heard this verse before, but isn't it awesome? There's no better way to explain God's love but to remember the incredible sacrifices that he has made for us. The creator of everything encourages me, forgives me, and loves me. And like a best friend, God wants to be mine as well. The first half of James 4.8 says, Come near to God, and he will come near to you. This verse has been very impactful in my life. Understanding that God wants to be close to me makes me feel warm. The creator of everything wants a relationship with me. God is the best friend a person can want, and I'm glad that he wants my friendship as well. I'm Noah Keener. I'm a freshman at Glencoe High School. Uh, last weekend, when Brad asked me uh, to come talk here, uh, to come talk here in front of all three services, I got really nervous really fast. Uh, and once I got past all those nerves, I had to figure out what I was actually going to speak about. Uh, I started off by thinking, but I started off by thinking about God is knowledge, God is wise, because those are the things that are most important to me. But then I realized I have absolutely no good stories about that. I wasn't going to come up here and say, oh, I can say all 66 books, verses of the, or books of the Bible in order because that's not going to change anyone's life. <laughs> um, so I decided on doing God is Freedom because go America, right? Uh, when I grew up, in, I've grown up in the church all my life. But my parents placed these rules around me that made me, eventually made me uh, reluctant and dreaded going to church. Uh, things like wear a collared shirt, bring your Bible, no shorts. Um, and eventually when I started coming here, I realized that's not what it's about. It's, uh, the rules are there to give you the free will to do what God wants you to do. Uh, I find people in my school now where uh, I just assume they're Christian because of their actions. But then when I, I become friends with them and I ask them, uh, so are you religious at all? And they're like, uh, no, because there's too many rules for Christianity. I'm like, you're already following all the rules. What's your problem? <laughs> uh, Peter 2.16 says, live as free people, but, not, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Now, being a slave to God isn't being held back and tied down. It's using God's grace and will to do what he wants you to do. If you're a slave of evil, you're being held down and not, you don't have freedom. It looks like freedom, but it's not freedom. God gives us free will. Uh, one of the strongest examples of this is in Adam and Eve. Uh, if you remember, the story says that God places the tree of knowledge of good and evil 
and the tree of eternal life and tells Adam and Eve, don't eat from it. And then they proceed to go eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the re- now, a lot of people say, why did they- he just not put the trees there in the first place? Then there'd be no sin. That's not what it's about. The point is, is that it gives Adam and Eve the option to sin. If you just told a robot to say, I love you, God, it wouldn't be love, would it? If you don't have the option to love, it's not love. Uh, it's not ever about the rules, and it's, but it's about God's grace. We follow the rules as a response to God's grace. James 1.25, it says, But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Uh, so, to end off here, I want you to imagine a wall. On the other side of the wall is God, and you're separated from him. But, God, but then Jesus, who uses his grace to break down the wall, gives you the freedom to go through and be with God. Now, I'm going to go walk through that hole in the wall. Man, I live for that. My tank is full, that's for sure. So how is it that we can get the best out of our teenagers today? How is it we can love and support and encourage them on in their faith story to remember the things that God has done? How is it we can hand off our story well? How is it we can champion the next generation's faith? Like we should, like they should have done in the original verse that I read in Judges in the uh, land of Israel. Well, number one, it starts in the home. I had a conversation with a uh, teenager last week, and, um, and I asked her, what would be the one thing you wish you had but you didn't have growing up? She said, a stable, loving family. By far the most solid, confident, thoughtful teenagers that I've encountered come from a solid, grace-filled home with rules and with chores. And it's possible whether you're a single parent, two-parent, foster parent, grandparent, legal guardian, you name it, you can have a healthy, loving home that supports a teenager. I think that some people make the mistake of, uh, of believing their job is done when a teenager re- re- reaches a certain age. Because let's face it, I mean, they can look after themselves, they can do everything they need to do to get along, and so some parents just back off. Say, all right, do what you need to do, but I think that's a mistake. I believe we need to be engaged and continue to encourage and encourage and encourage. The best gift you can give your teenager is a healthy home. If you're married, a healthy marriage. It starts in the home. Number two, make an investment. In the same conversation I had with this teenage girl, I, um, I asked what helped her the most growing up. She said, whatever my family didn't provide for me... I, I got from other people, friends, parents, church, and youth group leaders, definitely. I was still able to see a healthy family functioning just under another roof. I believe that no matter what our current connection is with the next generation, with teenagers in particular, I believe it's our duty and we owe it to them to make an investment into their lives. And you can help them to succeed today. You've heard that quote, it takes a village to raise a child. I think it's true for many of us. This might look like 
encouraging um, your teen to invite their friends around for family dinner time or family time and being present when they're there so that they can see what a healthy home looks like. You never know, if, you, if you're a parent of a teenager, you never know uh, the story in the background really of those teenagers coming to visit you or why. I spent a lot of time going to different friends' houses growing up as well. And I did that because I felt like I could learn something from them, from their families. They probably never knew that. So the impact you can have on your teen's friends is huge. So just be aware of that. You could volunteer at a local junior high school or high school or in the youth ministry. Be willing to start a small group or a Bible study as a leader for teenagers or maybe making some time to go to a school and getting some coffee for a couple of students listen to their stories. You could offer to drive students to church or events. One of the things that uh, teenagers wish they had at a young age would be a car and a license, and a lot of them don't. So we actually, uh, as a youth ministry, uh, we have one of our leaders go out to Forest Grove and pick out a bunch of students and go through Cornelius and bring them to church, and that's a, that's a big deal. They're actually here today. The other thing we can do is contribute financially to students for camps and missions trips so they can grow in Christ themselves. So whether you have kids or not, I encourage you to open your life to a teenager and share your God's story with them. Number three, never underestimate your return. And the band can come back on stage. Challenge your team. Assume that they can achieve their goals. Don't just say it, but believe it. Believe they can reach their crazy goals. Let's make the decision to acknowledge God before our teenage generation. Pass on our faith story to the young people that we meet so that this generation will succeed us and remember the great things he has done. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we just submit this time into your hands. For for those, Father, who have been stirred to take action, Lord, would you lead and guide them? Lord, for those who need to make a difficult phone call, maybe to a grown-up child, Lord. Would you give, uh, give strength and courage to do that in the right words? Lord, for those today who are experiencing a difficult time with their kids, Lord, I pray that your hand of peace will be upon that family. Father, and I pray that as they work on creating a healthy household, and growing in that way, Lord, that their teenagers would be inspired and encouraged and would come to know you. Lord, we just pray for resilience. We pray for consistency. And we pray for your insight in all of these things. I pray this in your mighty name. Amen.